Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos. Um, today's Bible reading will be taken from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Um, at the end of the reading, I'll end by saying this is the word of the Lord, and you're to respond, thanks be to God. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But, as, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Alright, you're all welcome here to City Church. Um, There was somebody that was sitting here before. Where is he? Alright, he's coming back. Alright, we want somebody to sit down there. This seat is not meant for, it's not reserved for anybody special. Alright, good morning again. So, when you think about Christmas, what comes to mind, especially if you, if you go back to your childhood memories, what kinds of things just generally come to mind? There you go. So, Emmanuel last week said that, um, you know, I think he, was, he started singing Christmas carols like from the beginning of the year or something like that. For me, I've been quite fortunate to have um, experienced Christmas in two different cultures. So I grew up here in Lagos, um, and I experienced Christmas here growing up, and I still do. But I also spent a few years in Manchester in the UK, and I also experienced Christmas there. When I got to the UK, there was a character called Santa Claus. And kids really believed in this character. You know, if you had been a kid, if you had been a good kid all year long, you know, the belief was that Santa Claus would come down the chimney 
in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve, leave presents for you under the Christmas tree. You wake up on Christmas morning, you open your presents, you're very excited. That's if you've been a good kid. You know, kids really believe this story. They really believe the character in Santa Claus. They really, you know, I think I remember going into somebody's house once and, you know, I tried to make a comment that suggested that maybe Santa Claus wasn't real and the mom, the mom almost killed me, you know, because our kids were within earshot of me making that comment. In Nigeria, growing up, we had a similar character, except that he wasn't called Santa Claus. He was called what? And he didn't come down any chimney or even come to your house. You had to go somewhere and to go and see him. If you lived or grew up in Lagos, it was probably Mortina family party. That was where you go and see him. As kids growing up then, you know, we kind of were sharp. We're very sharp kids. We're not under any illusion that this was a fantastical character. We all knew that it was one guy dressed up, you know, to look very funny. You know, in primary school then, so one guy came and told me that he went to one. The Father Christmas gave him one gift. He went, he opened it. He didn't like it. He went and gave the guy back, you know. <laughs> you know. Our version, our version of the whole Father Christmas is somewhat defective, you know. With the Santa Claus, he leaves the present. You can't go and give it back to him, you know. You open it, whatever you see there, you just have to like it. And they like it. But for us, if we don't like it, we can go and give back to Father Christmas. Some of you mentioned food. You know, food is a good thing. during. It's a, it's a wonderful thing during Christmas. I mean, it's almost like automatic. You must eat rice and chicken, you know. It's not, there's no, you know, you can't eat anything else. Maybe if you go to the village, they might have goods there. But really, it's always rice and chicken, you know. My mom always taxed me with killing the chicken. I didn't like it. I didn't like having to kill the chicken, but she knew how to get me. She would give me extra meat if I, if I killed the chicken. And of course, Christmas carols, you know. Um, I started teaching my kids Christmas carols as I'm singing with them or teaching them Christmas carols from somewhere towards the end of October. Because for me, growing up with my siblings, we used to gather together, you know, to no audience in particular. We just sing Christmas carols, at least what we thought we knew about the Christmas carols, right? And I think one of them sounded something like this. I think it was only recently that I really kind of knew what the Feliz Navidad was all about. I think we just sang something like this for a very long time, you know. But the thing is, we, we, we have a lot of these memories. A lot of them are really nice, you know. Um, I, I pray we don't lose many of them. But I think we would all agree that sometimes we get so caught up in these things that we can forget what the real meaning or the true spirit of Christmas is all about. And I think that's the reason why we are in this series, in this Advent series, which we have titled God With Us. We are trying to remind us that the coming of Jesus Christ is a wonderful thing. You know, it's a great thing that, he has, that, that Jesus Christ came to this earth. It's a great thing that we have it as Christians. But also to remind us that what Jesus Christ came to do, or where Jesus Christ came into, was a very dark world. It was very dark with, with sin in particular. And that darkness still exists in our world today, especially around us. So Christ's coming is not just coming in some sort of a very wonderful story of a baby in a manger. But that his coming is um, that he came to die for us 
and that his dying and his resurrection is the response to the way we treat the helpless, the sinner, and the outsider. So this series is titled God With Us, and last week we looked at the first part which was called God With The Voiceless, which Emmanuel took for us. Today we are looking at the second part which I have titled God With Outsiders, looking at the passage that Aleri read for us this morning. Now, um, it is good for us to restore order where once order has been, disorder has been created. And Emmanuel came last week and created disorder by giving us only two points. We're back to three points. We will look at this title of God with outsiders along these three points. Number one, the rejected outsider. Number two, the loved outsider. And number three, the ultimate insider. So let's start with the first one, the rejected outsider. The passage Aleri read for us begins this way. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, it is good for us to understand the context that we're discussing, where this story is actually set. If you think it is just a story, please have in, your, in the back of your minds that this actually happened, right? So in that sort of setting, being betrothed or being pledged, as Mary was, is not exactly the kind of thing that you have now where um, somebody is engaged, you know, you put a ring on somebody's finger and then you, you can wait like six months or 12, you know, three months before you actually have the proper wedding. In this particular instance, what happens is kind of like an arranged marriage. So the parents of both parts of the couple would have arranged and put, this, put them into what is pretty much a legally binding contract, so to speak. Um, by so doing, they are bound to actually get married. So the period between the betrothal and the time they actually consummate the wedding, there's some sort of preparation going on. You know, the man knows he's going to take this woman as his wife. The woman is also getting ready. You know, I'm not quite sure exactly how they work things out, but what is quite clear is that there is, a, there is something legally binding and there is still the consummation of the marriage which was supposed to take place later on. Now, this is exactly the setup that you have. And you know, I've always wondered how that conversation with Joseph and Mary actually went. Remember that in Luke, Luke tells us this a similar story from Mary's point of view. And there, she has already, the, the angel has already appeared to Mary and told her about the birth of Jesus, you know, also telling her about the birth of John the Baptist. So Mary knows. But Joseph is probably, you know, going around just looking at Mary's, maybe trying to get the house ready, you know, for them to move in together and all that. And then he's, you know, he's, he notice, he's noticing maybe some sort of bump on Mary's stomach. And he's like, what's going on there? I mean, maybe, you know, he waits a few weeks more just to see whether maybe his suspicions are... And he's, he realizes that the thing is actually growing. And he goes, my sister, please. <laughs> what's this? <laughs> and then she says, uh, it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the guy says, who is that? <laughs> You know, and she was like, you know, she, would, she basically would try to explain, I imagine, you know, that, you know, this is what happened. The angel of the Lord appeared to me. And the guy just looking at her like, what is this lady saying? Now, I want you to think about it. If you're a man here, think about it for a moment. You have put a ring on somebody's finger. You're looking forward to getting married. You're trying to get ready and all of that. The marriage is coming. And then she comes and she tells you, I'm pregnant. How do you think you're going to feel? If you're thinking, oh, but if she told me that it was from the Holy Spirit, I think I will, I will listen to her. It's, it's not true. 
I can tell you now it's not true. Let me read one list for you. Um, money for the in-laws, 50,000 naira. 20 tubers of yam. 20 snails. One big tray of oboroko. Money rose powder, 24. I don't know why it has to be money rose powder. Ovaltine. It's not Milo. It's not Bonvita. It's Ovaltine. Two big sizes. One carton of tin milk, 24 loaves of bread, two bags of salt. Cash to bring down symbolic cooking pot, 1,000 naira. George material, Hollandis material, two pieces. Blouse material, two pieces. Do you know what list I'm reading? But I didn't tell you that. I did not say it was my own, but you know what list I'm reading. 20 gallons of palm wine. One roll of benzene and hedges. 12 heads of tobacco and potash. 10 cartons of star beer. I haven't, read, I haven't read a quarter of the list. You know, when the Bible says that he who finds a wife has found a good thing, I think they were talking about evil men. Because evil men... You are, as an Igbo man, you want to get married to somebody. You see this list? I haven't read a quarter of it. Though. I haven't even talked about the bride price, the actual bride price. That one is negotiable. They call it negotiable every time. Because it depends on who you are going to marry. The man is expected to pay for everything. Not his parents, though. It's the man. In fact, the man is expected to have built a house. He's expected to have done freedom. If he, if he was serving somebody in Alaba International Market, he's expected to have done his seven years independence. He's expected to have basically established himself. And so when the Bible says, he who finds a wife has found a good thing, trust me, evil people think that they are the ones because they would have gone through all of this. They would pay this. If I have a friend, when he went through his, the, the, the marriage list that he gave to him for his marriage, he said, if I marry this woman and she does not kneel in front of me every day. <laughs> he was, the guy was, he was, he was pained. You know? So you cannot tell me, at least if you are Igbo, you cannot tell me that after you have paid this and you are getting ready to get married and then the lady comes and says, I'm pregnant, that you will just overlook it or you will hear some sort of story about this man called the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Let's face it. Um, it will be a very hard pill to swallow. This is reality now. First, your opinion of her will change. You are going to question her character morally. You are most likely going to feel betrayed. Many of us in this room will not go ahead with that marriage. I imagine it was more so for Joseph. Because unlike our time, where love and sexual attraction are considered necessary preludes to, to getting married, that wasn't the case for them. You see, they were expected to develop that love and sexual attraction in the marriage itself. So there wasn't anything that could have tied, tied him to, to Mary in some sort of an emotional way. Do you see? All he was looking forward to was consummating his marriage with, with this virgin. It would have been quite devastating to Joseph to find out that his wife, who he thought was a virgin, had actually had sexual relations with another man, or so he thought. He was well within his rights and the law to put her away or to divorce her as he planned to do. And as a matter of fact, if indeed she was found guilty of adultery, the law says that she should be put to death. That was the society that they lived in at the time. At the very least, even if she wasn't put to death, she would have definitely been exposed to some sort of public disgrace. 
that is their society. And I dare say that not much has changed between that time and now. Our society is very unforgiving and tends to look down on people that we perceive that we are morally better than. And more so Christians. I think because as Christians, if we have some sort of, because we feel we have a stricter um, um, standard to follow, we tend to be more harsh. We are quite unforgiving of women who have had children out of wedlock or even if they get pregnant before they marry. You see people trying to calculate, ah, uh-uh. Shebi she just got married, your daddy, you know? What's this one? She don't born already. Or something like, why she no wear white for her wedding? You know, I don't, I don't really get that one. There is a disdain with which we look at prostitutes or yahoo yahoo boys or those who identify as homosexuals because primarily we see ourselves as better than they are. We become unable to relate with them as human beings. We become unable to relate with them as people created in the image of God. Because in our eyes, they have become what they do. And when we do that, consciously or subconsciously, we reject them. We alienate alienate them and thus we create a barrier for the gospel. Let me show you two ways in which we actually reject outsiders in our society, especially as Christians. Number one, going beyond what is written in the law. Going beyond what is written in the law. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ is talking and he says, you have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In actual fact, there wasn't any law that said, hate your enemy. There was a law that said, love your neighbor as yourself but what had happened was they had taken other laws that they had seen in, 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 in they had taken other things they had seen in the law. For instance, where you see an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, and they have somehow extraneously allowed that to mean to them, hate your enemy. So, in other words, it had become a popular saying, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, and they believed they were supposed to actually hate their enemies. And Jesus Christ corrects them in that sermon that no, you are supposed to pray for your enemies or pray for those who persecute you. I was so glad when Femi preached on a message um, a few weeks ago on the misuse of sex in the recently concluded series, um, Idols and the City. And there he was talking about how we treat homosexuals in our society. I have a friend, or not a friend, he's a colleague more like, um, and he absolutely <laughs> detests, he absolutely detests, he's not my friend, but I'm trying to make him my friend. <laughs> uh, but I'm trying to make him my friend. He, he, he abhors homosexuals. You know, he doesn't even wait for them to identify as homosexuals. If he suspects that there is some mannerism that he doesn't like, that this could be remotely identified with someone who, someone who, um, who is a homosexual, he can, he can barely eat or he can barely stay in the same room with them. So one day I talked to him and I asked him, what, what, as in he, he was basically expressing his feelings about it, and I asked him, oh, why? Why do you have this way? And he basically told me, that his abhorrence reflects God's heart on the matter. I said, how so? And he took me to Leviticus 18 and 20, where their laws are laid down, and he says that anyone who is caught in, an, in a homosexual act, it is an abomination unto God, and, and, and they should be put to death. And I said, but you didn't read the rest of Leviticus 20. In Leviticus 20, there are several other laws, including adultery, 
which the, the, the punishment is capital, is, is also, you know, they should be put to death if they are find, found guilty of adultery. And he goes, eh, no, 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 no. But that one, that one about homosexual is the only one that says it's, it's an abomination. So I say, okay, look at Proverbs chapter 6. And Proverbs chapter 6, it says, haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, false witnesses, feet quick to rush into evil, all expressed as abominations to God. And he said, eh, no, but it's, it's still not the same thing. So I finally show him 1 Corinthians 6. And there it says, all wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy. Greedy people, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. But alas, this guy said, no, it can't. It's still not the same thing. You see, what he has done is that he took a particular law or he took something about the law of God. He elevated it above every other law and he said, this is the worst law or the worst transgression that a man can commit. He put it in a place that the Bible doesn't actually put it and he's treating other people on the basis of what he has done in that way. I personally think that there are some selfish motives there. I think that sometimes, based on our own selfish motives, we go beyond what is written in scripture and treat or reject people on that basis. So that's one. Going beyond what is written in the law. Number two is, we are enraged at other people's sins, but we refuse to see our own. We're enraged at other people's sins, but we refuse to see our own. This is otherwise known as Plankinson disease. Do you remember? Yeah. Plankinson disease. That was a disease that was introduced to the world by Damilola Adiremi. But essentially, it's the disease that Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 7, still the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you know why? This scripture or Jesus Christ refers, compares the sin that we see in other people, calling it a speck, and the sin that is in our own, a plank. Do you know why? Because sins that we refuse to see are much harder to get rid of. If you do not know that you, are, that you have a, a fault, how do you get rid of that fault? You're not married, but you're living with or sleeping with someone who is not your husband or wife, and yet you look down on prostitutes. Sometimes in your mind, you may try to justify it. Ah, but me, I'm not, I'm not, at least I'm not selling my body for money. Essentially, you're not humbled by your own sin. If you are humbled by your own sin, then you are less likely to look down on others. If you think of all the times that you have been deceptive, or you have schemed your way, to get what you felt should have been yours, then you are less likely to condemn 419 guys. If you remember that you constantly, illegally download movies or TV series, then you are less likely to condemn thieves. Yes. Or software. Sometimes we get so... You know, the thing is, it's easy for us to and that's what I think we do. We categorize sins. That's what we, that's what we do. We think, ah, 
this one, I, I, at least I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm not doing this one. That's, every, that's how we, t we tend to look at it in our heads. We think what we are doing is okay because we are not doing something that in our minds we say is worse. What happens is that, apart from the fact that you refuse to see your own and you can't do anything about your own because you refuse to see it, there's a tendency for you to want to condemn other people because you think their own sin is worse. But if you think your own sin and you realize that where you are is a place that you need, to be, you need to come out of or you need God's love, then there is a way you would treat people who you think are outsiders with grace. Part of this is also the fact that we are, we've become so consumed with being Christian that we forget how we became Christian. You see, we are engaged in all kinds of arguments. Arguments like whose version of eschatology is the, is the, is the better one, is the correct one. And we forget how sinful we were when God saved us. When we remember the grace that we experienced and how much we've been forgiven, we become a lot less condemning and we wish for that same forgiveness to be granted to others. Ask yourself if you're being called out this morning. How would you have treated Mary if you had found out that she was pregnant or she had a child out of wedlock? How do we treat outsiders or sinners, sinners as we so call them in our society today, do we treat them the way we would want to be treated, knowing that we were once sinners? Or do we ultimately reject them and subconsciously condemn them? Because if we reject them, we can't give them the gospel. And if we can't give them the gospel, we know that it is only through the gospel that they can be saved. That brings me to my second point. Loving outsiders. You see, not very much is written about Joseph in the Bible generally. And even in this passage, it's pretty much this story here. And then we hear how, not really about Joseph, but we hear how they, 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 they travel to Egypt. But if there's anything we can get from this particular story, we can tell that Joseph was somebody that we could learn quite a little bit from. If you don't learn anything from him, at least you can learn the fact that verse 19 says, that Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. That was a good thing. That was a commendable thing. He was faithful to the law. He was, he was interested in being faithful to the God that he has always known and worshipped as the Almighty God. He was faithful to the law. But that's not all they say about Joseph. It says that Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Do you know that those are two different characteristics? In, on the one hand, he was faithful to the law, so he planned to give her a certificate of divorce, right? On the other hand, he was determined to not expose her to public disgrace, so he planned to do it quietly. Why do you think Joseph did that? Why do you think? I think, I, think I would like to say, is because Joseph, as a man, was able to distinguish between the transgression and the person. He was able to see that whilst one ought to condemn the transgression, it doesn't mean you have to naturally condemn the person. He was still able to see Mary as somebody who was created in God's image. And so he was able to treat her with that dignity, yet still maintaining his faithfulness to the law. Sometimes we think being faithful to the law of God means condemning those 
who we think are guilty of transgressing that law. So sometimes it's almost like we lump them together. There is no consideration for whether this person can be restored. There is a way we can be so consumed by upholding God's law, especially in other people's lives, especially in other people's lives, not our own lives, that we are unable to distinguish the person from the transgression. This is what happened to the Pharisees, and they were considered as people who placed the letter of the law above the spirit of the law. I'd like to read a quote from you from one of my very, very favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. He says, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. I used to think this a silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Just imagine that we'd apply that same thinking to other people. And so that when people do things, we think about the fact that we can still love them without necess- and still condemn what they have done without necessarily condemning them. Just the same way we do ourselves. So when the Pharisees, especially in Mark chapter 2 and 3, you see them always you know, attacking Jesus Christ for one type of thing or the other about the law. They keep on saying, oh, you know, you're not doing this about the law. You're not doing this about the law. And that's why they have been historically known as people who um, only are only after the letter of the law, but they don't really want to get the spirit of the law. They don't want to get the intent behind the law. They're just after the letter. They fail to see what the intent was behind the law. Let me tell you another story that kind of illustrates this or put this, puts this together. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus encounters the expert in the law. That's what Luke tells us. And an expert in the law approached him. And he asks him a profound question. He says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is a, that is a big question. You know, if, one, if somebody asks that question here, well, anyway, leave that one. But he asks Jesus Christ, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you see, during that encounter, what Jesus Christ does is that for every question that he asks him, he asks him a question. Right? And so Jesus Christ asks him, what is written in the law? Because, of course, he knew he was an expert in the law. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man thinks for a moment and he says, oh, um, this is an expert in the law. Right? When I mean an expert in the law, he knows all the laws. The laws about how you, how you muzzle an ox and if your neighbor's goat comes and bites your own goat and all those other different kinds of things. He knows all those aspects. He knows oh, what you should do if somebody is found guilty of adultery. He says this in terms of summing all that up, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your mind, and you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. That was his summation of the law. He didn't realize how right it was, but Jesus Christ told him. Jesus Christ said, oh, you are very correct. Do this, and you will live. Now, you see, this was an expert in the law. So like all Jews, this man, still because of matters of the law, had, as Jews were, had a deep hatred for Samaritans. You see, what had happened was that in the, during the time that the Christians were in exile in, the Babylon, in, in, in Babylon, 
when certain Jews wanted to travel back and go and rebuild the temple, the Samaritans were those that you know kind of opposed their building, going back to rebuild that temple for reasons, you know, for for very very many reasons, and that created a rift that spanned over 500 years between Jews and Samaritans. And this Jew, this expert in the law, just thought about it. Oh, okay, so. Jesus Christ is saying that if I just love my neighbor, love God, love my neighbor, I should be fine. I'm going to leave. I've done it. You know, I've done it. You know, I've loved all my Jews. I've loved all my neighbors. I've, you know. And so he, he asks another question. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus Christ goes on and tells the story of the, or the parable of the, of the good Samaritan. In that parable, he just narrates how um, a Jew is actually traveled and his, you know, armed robbers have attacked him and left him for dead. And that Different people, priests, all Jews, have passed by him and not attended to him. But then it is a Samaritan who attends to him and goes above and beyond to ensure that this person is actually well catered for. And he asks him another question at the end of the parable. And he says, who do you think was a neighbor unto this man? And he says, of course, the, the Samaritan, of course. And he says, go and do likewise. You see, in the mind of this expert in the law, he felt he had done well in loving his neighbors, but he never considered that the Samaritan, whom he thought was an outsider, still on matters of the same law, would consider or be qualified as part of his neighbors. And so he didn't think that his love needed to extend to them. This was a man that said that the summation of every law that we have seen, especially in the Old Testament, was that you should love God and not just love God, but the love of God that you have for him with your heart, with your soul, and your mind is expressed through how we love our neighbors. And God, Jesus Christ, was basically telling him that that neighbor that you think you have loved, the Samaritans are part of them. So you see that sometimes we can set up certain things in our minds as to how we actually behave. But if we don't realize that what is behind the law is actually love, and that love for God is really expressed. You, the only way you can tell that you have love for God is exactly how you express that love for the people that you see. When we are able to distinguish between the person and the sin, then we can still remain faithful to God's law and show love towards the person rather than alienate them. See, that is very important. It's not separate. It's not that we are separating the person from the sin. It's that we are able to distinguish and so we are able to try and address the transgression but not forgetting that the person that we are talking about is still made in the image of God and so we are still able to show love to them. You know what that looks like? You know what that looks like? It means that we remember that the only way we can address sin in someone's life is the way sin was addressed in our lives through the gospel. And so when we love people, what we do is we love them with that same gospel. Distinguishing between the sin and the person should lead us to be faithful to God's law but still also love that person. Joseph is a very good example. We see how he was able to do that in verse, in verse um, 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But of course, Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate during Christmas, is perhaps the best example. And in many instances, we see that not only does he have this outward approach towards sinners, we see that sinners are naturally drawn to Jesus. Against the advice of the scribes and the Pharisees, again, so-called experts in the law. In Matthew chapter 9, after calling Matthew the tax collector, again, tax collector is not a, a job title. It was not a job title. 
tax collector was a, a derogatory term. It was a term used to indicate to, the, to people that this guy was the baddest kind of person you can actually meet. In fact, most of the time, if you go through the Bible, you will see they will put it tax collectors and what? Sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. It was a derogatory term. It was not their job. Even though part of their job was collecting taxes. But it's the fact that the way they went about it, it was very brutal most of the time. The way they actually mercilessly did it without any compassion for people. And they were collecting it on behalf of, of the ruling power at the time, the Romans at the time. After, Matthew call, after calling Matthew the tax collector to be his disciple, that is who uh, Jesus Christ called to be his disciple, we find Jesus reclining at table with many tax collectors and sinners. When the scribes and Pharisees grumble about the company he keeps, Jesus tells them that he has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke chapter 7, a sinful woman anoints Jesus with expensive ointment and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears and the hair of her head. When Jesus is corrected for letting this sinner touch him, he reminds Simon that those who are forgiving much love much. Eventually tells this woman, go, your faith has saved you. In Luke chapter 15, we have the parables of the lost sheep, lost coin, and the lost son. But these are all presented in a particular setting. Tax collectors and sinners again were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled that Jesus was receiving them to eat with them. To eat with them. So the three parables that follow demonstrate how God seeks out the lost and how pleased God is when sinners repent. Luke chapter 19. Once again, the Jewish leaders are grumbling because Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, Zacchaeus. Though Zacchaeus repents and is a changed man, they can't simply accept that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and that this notorious tax collector has been saved. I pray that we are not like these Jews and these scribes and these Pharisees. I pray that the Christ that we remember at Christmas, the one that we celebrate with all the enjoyments that we do, I pray that we remember that he is a Messiah that came to be with those who are lost, Emmanuel, God with us, so that he can save them from their sins, Jesus. I gave two ways in which we reject outsiders. Let me give two practical ways in which we can love outsiders. Number one, we have to be comfortable with the marginal. Now, what I mean by that is we have to be okay with being marginal ourselves. And by the marginal, I mean associating ourselves with those who are supposedly less privileged in society, those who are poor, destitute, those people who society naturally looks down upon. We have to be comfortable with not just waiting for somebody to come and tell us that they are supporting a call or they are, they are, they are, they are, they are, they are leading a, 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 a non-governmental organization and then we, we, in the comfort of our homes, we actually just give money towards it. I'm not saying that giving money is... In fact, I'm actually asking you to give, but I'm saying get involved as well. There is so much that we can learn from just getting involved in the lives of these people that we sometimes think that we are far away from. We sit in our houses and we think that there are... We, we hear these stories about people who are going through difficulties or people who end up going through, going through a very bad way. So people that end up maybe becoming prostitutes or becoming criminals because of the lifestyles that they've gone through. 
you know, and sometimes we, we make unkind remarks like, oh, no, they should, have, they should have known better or there are ways that they could have gotten out of it because we are not familiar enough with that sort of setting to be able to know how to address those kinds of things. Get involved. We have justice initiatives. I mean, December is our justice month for a good reason. We have justice initiatives that our gospel communities are getting involved in. Don't just give money. Give money, please. But don't just, let, let that not be the end of it all. Let, let's try and get involved in the lives of the people that we're going to. I think last year, one of the GCs went to Ikoyi prison. And what they were trying to do was they were looking at people who had um, been convicted and had stayed in prison for a long and extended period of time, essentially waiting for, for, for trials to hold. And, you know, they were there for months and some of them years. Some of them perhaps even wrongly arrested. If you don't get involved, you can't learn from these people. You can't reach out. You can't love them in any way, and so you can't even reach out to them. We have to be comfortable with being marginal. Number two, take the first step and aim to love. Some of us don't need to go far out to actually encounter the people that we have already rejected. Just think about it. In your office, in your family, there are people that you don't want to associate yourself with. Maybe because of something they have done, some way they have behaved that makes you think, ah, this one, I can't, find, I can't, I can't associate myself with this person. This person is not a Christian. You know, we, we can easily make those kinds of statements. You don't have... The command is not everybody you come across in this life, you must share the gospel with them immediately. You don't have to start talking with somebody and say, oh, how are you? Uh, what, my name is Francis. Your name is what? Do you know Jesus loves you? It's, that is perhaps the most ineffective way to do it. The best thing we can do is to actually aim to love them. You get to know them. Get to know their lives. Get to know what they are suffering. Get to know why that person that you've been condemning since because the person did an abortion as um, um, Emmanuel was talking to us yesterday. Get to know why she even did that. If you get to know that you can interact with their life, we can interact with them a little bit more, and then you can find ways to help them, and then you can find ways to be able to apply the gospel to their lives. Take the first step and aim to love. That brings me to my third point. We've looked at how sometimes we reject outsiders, whereas in the second point, what we ought to be doing is loving outsiders. My third point is the ultimate insider. Ultimate insider. Verse 20. Um, but after he had considered this, after Joseph had considered divorcing Mary quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I wonder how he felt there, maybe because Mary had told him Holy Spirit. Now he's hearing it. Anyway, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Last week, somebody asked a question about prophecies, and how we relate with prophecies today, and, you know, especially looking at some of the prophecies we saw last in, in, in last week's message. But then we have another one here in verse 22 where it just tells us that all this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying that the virgin will conceive and give birth to his son and they will call him Emmanuel. You know, I was thinking about that question last week and I was thinking, and I was preparing for this sermon and I was just thinking, you know that the characters in this story, as events were playing out, 
they didn't really know that the prophecy was being fulfilled. You know, maybe after some event happened, they realized, oh, maybe at this point in time, Joseph might say, oh yeah, there's something in scripture, in, there's something in, in, in scripture that says this. You know, but he doesn't know what the next thing is going to happen. He doesn't know what is going to happen that is actually going to fulfill the next prophecy, right? So they were not quite sure about they were not quite sure about the fact that prophecy was being fulfilled. Even the prophets, prophet Isaiah in this case, when he was prophesying, he didn't quite know exactly. Trust me, up until this time, there had been no virgin that had conceived and born a son. So Isaiah, in saying that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, he must have believed it, but he didn't quite know exactly how it would play out. So with the prophecies being given and with the prophecies being fulfilled, the players involved did not quite know exactly how they were going to, how those things were, being, were going to actually come about. But there was one person who knew. There was one person who knew from the foundation of the world. He knew when the prophecies were being given. He knew when the prophecies were being fulfilled. He was working in the stories of all these people that were reading because he was not just intimately aware. He was the planner and the orchestrator of everything. And that was God. You see, we believe in a God that is a three person in one God. In that community, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the song we just sang before, before the sermon. And that close-knit community was the community that created mankind. That close-knit community knows the depths of degradation that mankind had fallen into. And God planned. He gave promises. He gave prophecies as to how that mankind could be brought into the community of God. Think about it. It is the close community of God. But what did it take? What did it take for you and I now that we are able to call God what? Father. That means we have been brought into this community. What did it take for that to happen? It took a member of that community. It took a person in that community, Jesus Christ, to be ultimately made an outsider in that community, out of that community, so that we, you and I, could be part of that community of God. God knew the fallen state of mankind and knew that and knew what it would take to bring man into the God community. It would take Jesus himself, an insider in that community, becoming an outsider so that people like you and I, who were once sinners and thus outsiders, can become a part of that community. You see, what Joseph was trying to do was a noble thing. It was a noble thing. He wanted to, he wanted to divorce her quietly. But nonetheless, think of all the implications of what that action would have been. Definitely, Mary would have been seen as some sort of outsider. She would have been, perhaps, even if, let's say, let's say they didn't kill her, but he was trying to avoid her public disgrace. But there's no way, when, when, when you're betrothed to somebody, right, everybody knows about it. Everybody's kind of looking forward to that marriage. And then all of a sudden, even though he does it quietly, you hear that, oh, they're not getting married anymore, right? Questions will arise. If it is here in Nigeria, before you've even left this room, gossip has just started flying, 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 flying. Somebody has given reason without being a part of, without being a, a, a member of the family. Somebody has already said what the reason was. Ah, it's because, you know, they quarreled, you know, they, she slapped him, you know. Whether, whether that one is true or not. But, but my point is that somehow or the other, she will still be exposed to some sort of public disgrace. She will still be ostracized. It might be even difficult for another man to say that he wants to marry her. So Mary was 
saved by God's plan and purpose from being an outsider because Jesus Christ himself, in the process of being born, in the process of being born, was made an outsider. My dear friends, as we go through Advent and as we approach Christmas, let us keep in mind the reason that Jesus Christ came. Yes, we rejoice and we have fun. We are happy. We eat rice. We eat chicken. And we come up with catchy slogans like, Jesus is the reason for the season. Sometimes when people say that, I wonder if they really know what they're talking about. It sounds like something that is very, very nice to type when you're wishing somebody Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Jesus is the reason for the season. You know? And it sounds like something you can use to actually you know, maybe drop a rap line or something like that. <laughs> But what is the real reason? Why is Jesus Christ the reason? Is it because he looks like a cute baby in a basket? Is it because, oh, there's a wonderful story of how, oh, three kings of Orient came and gave him gifts and all of that. Is that the reason why he's the reason for the season? No. It is because, as the angel says to Joseph, she will give, a, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? You see, the name Jesus is the Greek form of the name Yeshua or Joshua, which actually means literally Yahweh saves. God himself come in Jesus to do what? To save his people from their sins. That is the reason why Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That there is the reason that that baby, 33 years after, went through a humiliating death on the cross. There was much Jewish expectation of a a savior. Everybody thought that this savior would come and save them from the tyrannical power of, of the Romans. That's what they thought that the Messiah was coming to save them from. They did not really think that the Messiah was coming to save them from their sins. And they certainly did not think that the way he was going to do that was by death on the cross. This Jesus came to earth became an outsider by becoming coming to this earth to be called things like wine babbler, glutton, friend of sinners, friend of outcasts. But that's not all. He suffered the humiliating death on the cross. And he did that so that true sinners and outcasts, including those that we encounter in our society today, may become insiders and part of the community of God. But guess what? Jesus did not remain dead. As part of the plan of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised from the dead. And so we can still call him Emmanuel because as he promised us in Matthew 28, I will be with you till the end of the ages. You see, Jesus Christ, him being called Emmanuel does not just mean alone that he walked the earth with outsiders. It means even after his death and resurrection that he still remains with us. He's still doing the same work that he came to do. He is still calling people who are lost, people who are outside, into the community of God. Friends, we have people that need this message all around us in our society. And rather than leave them as outsiders, this is what Philippians 2 says. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. I have one more thing to say. If you're here today and you consider yourself an outsider, consider yourself as somebody who hasn't really come into this community of God. I mean, you may have, you may have been celebrating Christmas all your life, you know, enjoying the, the, the good stories that you hear and, especially, and, and, and definitely the enjoyments. Can I ask you to just consider Jesus today? This Jesus that gave his life for you to be able to call God Father. This Jesus that chose to save you from your sins by dying on the cross, but also says that he's with you till the end of the age. So carols are the order of the day, and we're going to have our carol service on, on Friday. Um, but sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, we get so caught up in singing carols that we don't even pay attention to what we're singing anymore. Allow me to end with these words from this popular carol. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, O king of nations, bind in one heart, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our king of peace. Let us pray. Oh Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made by coming to earth to save us from our sins. We pray that you help every one of us to extend the love that you have shown us to those we consider outside this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.